Alright, this is uh, Kenny here, aka Simon Moon, aka The Scoops. Uh, even though Eric's not here, I'll do a little shout out to him. Um, what, am, what am I doing? Um, I am making something that's probably going to be unlistenable, a little something I'm going to call the Time Traveler's Guide to Netrunner. Um, basically, what it is, is I'm going to go back and look at a bunch of major tournaments, specifically previous worlds and sort of talk about the deck and you know talk about some of the plays some of the players just sort of do like a nostalgic remembrance of like uh some of the big big netrunner tournaments um you know sort of give all the top 16 their time to shine just sort of talk about them all the other great netrunner accomplishments you know what nice people they are anything else like that as well as just sort of you know, one of my favorite things to ever do in Netrunner is just argue about fundamentally unknowable questions. Like if pop-up or pad campaign is better as like the 49th slot in a deck and just insist that the person you're arguing with is stupid for thinking for, for thinking that they, they should run pop-up or vice versa. Um, and, you know, what kind of spawned this was um, one, of, one of the new podcasts was... I was um, asking a bunch of people to get predictions for 2020 worlds. I wasn't really playing a ton of the planet worlds, but I sort of was able to like know what a ton of people were playing, know it was good, and I really enjoy like talking about sort of like I think this deck is really good. I think this player is good. I think this player is like testing well, like stuff like that. I want to just sort of share a bunch of stupid knowledge I had in my head about all the Netrunner, great Netrunner players, um, and I also just like kind of feeling nostalgic. And, and love watching Netrunner. I just like, I really do. It's sort of like, I probably watch more Netrunner than anyone. You know, I don't think I've played the most, but like, I used to. I just would always have like the, the Twitch streams on for like Star Championships and Regionals. Um, and just like watch a ton of Netrunner. I really like doing it. Um, so, anyway, so that's. This is almost certainly gonna be unlistenable because it's, it's literally just gonna be me talking for i have a 40 page google doc with everything i'd like to talk about um which given i don't i don't know how it's gonna translate at the time but i assume we're talking about like hour hour and a half i mean you'll know by the time you listen to this but just like looking at the runtime anyway so i want to start with 2014 um this was actually the third world's I'm skipping 2012 and 2013. 2012 because sort of it kind of sucks. Um, it isn't that interesting and there isn't a ton of content about it. It's like fun to go back and watch, but it's kind of just one game. And like they don't, they just fundamentally don't know what they're doing. Um, you know, I remember like watching it. It's just like, there's like someone who just like scores an agenda. They just absolutely should never score and their opponent should always steal. Um, 2013 is a lot better. It's like people are starting to get good. They're not. I don't think anyone's really great. Jens Jens Eriksson is pretty good. You know, he's, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna lie. He's like pretty good. And, you know, some other stuff. But like, there's there's only 140 people. Um, sort of. It's sort of this card pool isn't amazing. Uh, it's kind of like it's like the first major netrunner tournament. But I also like did not start playing until 2014. So it's hard for me to like really say that much about it. Was it 2014? I basically know almost everyone. I uh, sort of I started playing in like 2014, so I know a lot of the deck archetypes. I've played with them. I can sort of like comment on like how they work and and stuff like that. 
but I didn't actually attend uh, 2014 Worlds. I had been living in Wisconsin, um, and then I moved to New York uh, in September um, to, to live with my girlfriends. Um, and this was like a big event for me. I like I started playing. I went to like two meetups in Wisconsin before I left, and then uh, sort of I moved to New York and moving moving across the country, especially like New York, is really hard. I have a job. I don't really have any friends other than my girlfriend. I don't really know that anyone who lived in New York City. And I was like looking for a job because it was, it was kind of like way too hard to look for a job while I lived in Wisconsin. And I actually spent like six months unemployed where I had like a, I was just doing a ton of interviews. And like I got to like a lot of last round interviews where they were just like, oh, no thanks. And it was just kind of like a pretty, pretty depressing time in my life. You know, I don't, like, take a ton of value in my job, but it still, like, sucks to have a bunch of people just, like, tell you that they don't want you. Um, and, like, that you're not, like, worthwhile, and they're, like, they don't think you'll be useful. Yeah, I probably got, like, I, I, I probably did, like, um, yeah, probably, like, 20, 25, like, first-round interviews, like, four or five, like, final-round interviews, and probably applied to, like, a couple hundred places, something like that. And then, like, eventually I did get a job, but it was, like, pretty scary, especially at the end. Um, so sort of, like, Netrunner was, like, this thing that, like, got me out of the house and I didn't really know anyone. It was, like, this thing. And then, I, especially, like, I played on Octagon was sort of something I could do during the day and, like, feel good about myself when I won and, like, get better. And so, like, really helped me a lot at the time. I was, like, I was, like, kind of depressed because I felt like, you know, I'm a... Yeah, you know, I was just saying. But anyway, so so in 2014 Worlds in particular was like this huge thing where it was just like, wow, this is so cool. Everyone's so good. I want to be like this. I want to be like up there on the big screen with everyone watching and like doing these cool Netrunner plays. And yeah, it was just it was just like an event. And like I also like a bunch of there's a bunch of like reports that came out of people going and be like, it was so much fun. You know, this game this game is so much fun. It was so much fun to meet everyone. The community is great. And that like really drove me to like go out and like go to meetups in New York City. Um, which I think was like a, a really big thing um in my life. You know, for just like getting through this like hard period and like making a bunch of friends and stuff like that. You know, because I like had friends in Wisconsin, but like you know, no one I was that great of friends with that like I would still keep that I would still like do stuff when you when I'm not in the same place. Anyway. All of like life is kind of just you know and all games are kind of just an excuse to talk about yourself <laughs> and like being good at never just like or like recording this podcast talking about never is like a thin excuse to tell a bunch of a bunch of stories about yourself and yeah but that's fine um so i'll be, I'll be telling if you don't want to hear a bunch of a bunch of stories about me that have like vague meanings and maybe aren't even that entertaining uh, I, w- I would turn around now um, unless you're like really interested in this stuff because I think this is probably this is probably going to be like the best source you'll ever get for 2014 Worlds um, yeah I read, I read an absolute ton uh, threads and watched, watched I watched every game um, I think just like in the past like two weeks stuff like that anyway so I'll start in 2013 uh, Never came out in like winter 2020 2012 and they had they had its first worlds, um, which is like this the core stuff, and it was kind of just like a bunch of people picking it up. And then the next year, sort of data back started coming out. And it was twenty thirteen worlds. I would say like twenty thirteen worlds is like a good, is a good point where it's like you have like somewhat of a meta, 
Um, and I would say there's like, uh, and I, I was saying there's 140 Swiss. They cut this top 32. And then for the top 32, they had this really bad format where you do single limbs for the top 32, where you play each side and then point differential decides it. So if you like, say, if you say like win your runner game seven to two and then you score four points as the corp, you win, which included in the grand finals, uh, the court player won their first game seven zero, and and then so they just need to score two points. <laughs> I, I think that's what happened, or in one of them, that's what happens. Um, it was just just like kind of silly and not really how netrunner works. Um, but anyway, so the decks, the, the decks, decks for the start were uh, HP fast advance. I think is probably the best deck for like most of the first like two years. First year, year and a half of Netrunner, where just like ETF was just the best idea, gave you a bunch of money in an environment where there wasn't a ton of good econ cards. Initially, like Adonis, but and then also Biotic Labor was like a great win con, and you'd splash for uh, Sand Sand City Grid, and so it's just like, um, and then you also had the best Ice of Eli, which I'll talk a little bit more about that later because um, it comes up a lot. MBN Fast Advance, which is basically like a worse version of HP Fast Advance. Except you have um, Asterisk Pilot Program, which is probably the single best card ever printed in a Netrunner. And that pretty much justifies it on its own. And you have MBN Kill, which is um, just sort of splashing Scorch into MBN and using Breaking News and CSRs to kill people. I think it was like never at this point as good as um, uh, the, the Fast Advanced MBNs. And then you also had Wayland Kill, which is like a lot of people consider this the best deck um for like a lot of early netrunner but i think it was actually just like i think this deck was just like never that great uh back then i think it was just actually really hard to win once people did but people didn't know and was just kind of like blunder into sea source scorch and especially when plaskrete everyone was like basically playing plaskrete also and i don't i don't think this deck was like never the best and like pretty much HP Fast Advance and MBN Fast Advance were like the best two decks for most of the start of netrunner and then runners it was basically the best deck for like most of the sort of Netrunner was good stuff. Krim, which was Gabe until Andy came out and like the third, the fourth pack, I think it was. At which point Andy was pretty much the best deck for um, all of the first like two, two and a half years of Netrunner. They just like had a bunch of the best cards. And then the, the notable Shaper deck was Catman, which when Creation and Control came out, had basically used Catman and Data Sucker uh, tokens to like break ice efficiently and you splash for desperado which was like i think pretty uh one of the like the two or three best cards at the point in time the other one being like siphon um and then there was noise who's just like especially pre-jackson howard was just totally broken you know his ability and it's just like also it's just like always totally broken as an ability and so you can kind of like it's just always fundamentally good even if like the card support isn't really there um and it's like notable in that so that's kind of like the meta in in twenty twenty in like most of like the first two years of that era. Those were pretty much the decks. There's a bunch of other stuff. That's like the stuff that was actually good. I don't actually even think Wayland's kill was that good, but it was like something you would certainly encounter a lot of. I think Andy was pretty much the best deck for for all of this. Another thing about this time is where people talked was way more fragmented. Like board game geek was one of the first places and it was also notable that like one of the one of the big two sources of advertisement early netrunner had was it was one of the top like 10 games at board game you kind of at one point was even first 
which is kind of crazy. Um, and it's like, you know, that's half of how I found out about this game was at that point in time, I was playing a bunch of board games with my friends in Wisconsin. And I was like, wow, this, this card game is like the top. None of them really wanted to play that much. We're mostly into like uh, games with a bunch of people. Um, so I, I had sort of like kept it on like the back burner for a while until I ended up moving. Board Game Geek is like an incredibly ugly website. Someone actually got mad at me for saying that once. And I was like, because I said it was so ugly, I probably wouldn't have like played Netrunner if I had to talk on Board Game Geek to like get information. And I agree with that assessment. Um, it's so ugly. Uh, the other big one early, I think, was Reddit. And both these are nice because they preserve a lot of the stuff. So I, I actually spent a bunch of time reading through old Reddit threads, old Board Game Geek threads. Uh, one of the other ones was like uknetrunner.co.uk or some shit like that. Um, what I know about this was basically there were a bunch of Taylor Swift themes. Um, that's what that's about what I knew about the UK Netrunner community at that point in time. Cardgamedb.com. It ha- kind of had a forums. It was like, um, I think FFG had bought this and then kind of it just like wasn't as good as NetrunnerDB which was like something someone from the Netrunner community put together that was pretty good, uh, Alcyon Day. Netrunner DB wasn't like 100% used, and so a lot of early deck lists aren't on there. There's also Meteor, I think, which I believe was made by Kiv. Um, there was like a, another deck storing website. There was Aku, which is um, sort of where a lot of the tor- early tournaments are. There's additionally, and they, that was made by Thomas Beale, one of the French Netrunner players. It was like a pretty great name, you know, Thomas Beale. And the yeah, Beale came out. I think they're spelled differently. Um, and then stimhack.com was sort of emerging as the competitive hive finds. At forums, um, it was founded by Sneaky Sly. I think I think it f- was founded out of like a frustration with Board Game Geek and just like I read some Board Game Geek threads and it was just like people talk trying to talk about like competitive networks being like, you guys playing Siphon are ruining the game. Which is kind of the dynamic I'll talk about more because I think it's like pretty interesting to like understand what was going on there in early Netrunner. Because I really miss it. I really miss like it was so stupid to have people being like, hate you for playing account siphon or NAH, like stuff like that. Um, but also like reflected a sort of success of the game that I think is is interesting. Though I think a lot of people take the the wrong lessons from that. Um, there's also a ton of podcasts. I listen to a bunch of the Winning Agendas, uh, the Breaking News podcast, Terminal 7, which is actually, Terminal 7 was the big podcast I listened to a lot. And uh, it was Nels and, oh, what was that guy's name? But I really liked it at the time. They were just, like, so enthusiastic about Netrunner. Like, later, I got kind of, like, once I got, like, pretty competitive and got pretty good at Netrunner, I didn't like it as much because they would just spend, like, five minutes talking about a card like thinking about all the great ways you could use like dinosaur and i was like well you can't really use dinosaur it's pretty bad um but their sort of enthusiasm was amazing and just sort of whenever they were talking about like going to tournaments and stuff or like exciting plays i really liked it um and i thought i think it's like a great a terminal seven style podcast it's like something that's really good getting you hooked on netrunner even if sort of like something like the winning agenda which I think started about this time. I think their like seventh episode was the world's episode for um, where Jesse Marshall talked about his world's experience. Um, and you know their first their their first like competitive mag- like netrunner podcast, which I think was like pretty good. 
Um, and I think I think one of the other things they didn't really have a forum, but Quinn's and shut up and sit down, uh, which was like probably the most popular board game review website, was super into Netrunner at this point. And that's another place I because I used to like watch all the reviews, to, like figure out games to play with my group of friends. And it was like he kept on talking about how great Netrunner was, and I was like I'd always been sort of attracted to like card games. I never really played because I never really had friends who wanted to play either. Um, and I didn't really want to do it by myself. And I think sort of the situation I was talking about earlier with like being alone was like really drove me to do, be willing to do it and meet all these people on my own. Whereas like before this, I'd usually like had friends and sort of like, you know, if I could get someone else to do something like this, I'd do it with them. But I would want to like do something like this alone. Um, so that's, I think it's useful to talk about like all the different places things were way more fractured back then you know sort of um there's also 4chan actually 4chan would just like constantly have a thread about netrunner which is pretty cool um you can like find them if you look hard enough if you've never been on 4chan it can seem really scary to like go on 4chan because you think of like uh all the terrible shit which is understandable you know and, like some of it creeps into there but it's also just like a bunch of people who like netrunner talking about it on 4chan and it's like not that terrible. They're like occasionally you'll just be like, whoa. Um, but I think most of it is like not indistinguishable from like stuff you'd read on board game geek. Alright. Um, so that's kind of that's kind of a bunch of different sources. I think stimhack.com has some of the best stuff because it's sort of where a lot of the best competitive players. Because especially at the time it's skewed heavily um, English speaking and US based. Um, which I think for this world, like 2013 world was like entirely USA, I think. Uh, I guess Can- North America, I would say Canada is, you know, like if you live in Canada, you're about as far from Minnesota as I am. All right, and now I'm going to sort of talk about uh, card pool sort of in the next year since the 2013 world. I kind of set up like the basic archetypes. So Spin had like started coming out, and then I think there are like two big important cards to talk about coming out um after 2013 worlds that opened up a lot of possibilities so the first is napd contracts which i think um i'll talk a little bit about it i think it's it's um a card that if you've only played netrunner in like the last like three or four years you might not realize what's so crazy about it this card was was a huge deal Uh, a ton of decks are going to be playing this in 2014 worlds it's really powerful. Um, four to steel at the time was huge. I think I think Ben Blum um, later once described MAPD contracts as the best trap in the game, which I think was true for a very long point in time. Losing four on act was just brutal, and the game was like pretty tight econ wise, and it, there weren't as good as, as many good money cards. It was a really good card. The other is Caprice Nice, which I've like long wanted to write an article about how Caprice Nice basically saved Netrunner. Um, I think I think I'll actually get to a little bit of that in this um, as I talk about like all the deck archetypes and some of the balance aspects of, of 2014 worlds. But basically this card um, is just incredibly powerful. Um, it's it's way more powerful than any other defensive upgrade has kind of ever been. Um, and it's sort of people have kind of been messing around with glacier, but it didn't really work. It was pretty much always worse than uh, fast advance or killing people and this is like the first card that really let glacier actually exist and then after spin comes honor and profit um i i first want to talk about alex frog 
because um, I think he's a really important figure and a really competitive netrunner. Um, and you can read his, his review of Honor and Profit. Uh, and it basically starts off with a rant about how much the game sucked. Um, and basically, it was stale. You're in half of the same dominant and overpowered cards. Basically, Siphon, Parasite were just like so powerful and warping the game. Astro, Biox, Sand Sensity Grid. Um, and then there, as well as broken strategies that are just like too powerful. He hated Caprice, even though Caprice decks hadn't really taken off. But I think he just hated the the random nature of it, which a lot of people did, which I think is um, I think is understandable. Um, especially, but I mean, I think a Caprice Caprice has hadn't really like been the best deck at, at this point, or even been like a good deck. Accelerated diagnostics because some CI combo decks had started to emerge that were pretty stupid, though they really weren't good enough at this point in time. Um, the game needs a ban list. He basically was saying there's never room for new stuff to develop, and he quit pretty soon after this. And I think he's like a classic archetype of a card game player, or just like a game player in general who really likes the start of a game when you know there's like so much possibility and just like really likes to figure out like the early best stuff and i think i think there's like a a lot of this in the the lcg model where people play for like the first they play like each of the lcgs for like a year year and a half and then jump to the next one as it comes out and you know it's just like this new game that's like totally untapped though i think ffg is kind of signaled they aren't doing lcgs really anymore um and then and i think but i think this is like the kind of guy who I, I don't think he played the other LCGs, which is interesting. I think it's like notable about Neverender that it attracted a lot of people who were not jumping from LCG to LCG. So like a bunch of people are like FFG um, diehards in Neverender. Um, and I think that's like a big part of the FFG LCG business model was you like get like a pool of these people and like some of them like really like Netrunner or Conquest or any any of the other ones for like some specific reason. And you keep on like making stuff and they keep on buying it for basically indefinitely. But you just kind of like stop getting new people at a certain point. Um, but it's fine because a lot of them like are in the FFG LCG ecosystem and just jump to the next one that's like new and fresh. You can really solve. Wrote a lot of really good um, Stimac articles um, and they give you a really good idea of like how people were understanding the game at that time. And I think he had some like really great insights. I remember his review of Leviathan. Which is like a terrible card, but I think you've wrote about how it wasn't bad to print Leviathan. It was it was bad in an interesting way, where you could, in understanding why it was bad, you got a lot of better understanding of the game. Which is basically that, well, Leviathan is good against bi exactly big code gates that you're going to break a lot, um, and kind of none of those exist at the time. But he sort of hypothesized, you know, let's say one exists. Well, it's kind of a bad strategy to run through this like really big, expensive code gate a bunch of times. What's how you win that runner is like if someone does that, then you beat them somewhere else, or you use like a tool like Fem that like lets you break that, and then you also the Fem can also do a bunch of other stuff. So Leviathan is like really only good at and it's exactly one thing, and like it's not even that good at it. And like usually when your opponent reses like big, expensive code gate, the answer is like win somewhere else or get rid of it um which i think is like a really important insight to like the nature of netrunner um of like this game where 
defending and one place opens you up to attack somewhere else as the court because you have like limited resources and it's also like a good insight into sort of um you know even if they're raising like uh, a 10 cost ice that would normally take you like seven to break and you're breaking it with like three with leviathan you don't really want to be doing that anyway three's still kind of a lot at that point in time like you'd rather just like run on the server that's free or like parasite and ice and run there for free and i think i think a lot of his early articles like are really you know he's not right about everything but sort of he has a lot of interesting ideas and a lot that you can understand and writes in a, a really useful way um, and I think that they also tend to be controversial, which I'm going to talk a little, a little about more. Um, and then I, and then we'll still talk about honor and profit real quick, the actual like, stuff in it. Though I think a lot of Alex Brown's early stat reviews are like a great thing to read if you're curious about like how people thought about the game. You can also like tread through board game geek, though it's a lot harder to like go through. And sort of Stimhack does a good job of like, okay, you can read this thread that's about this thing. Um, though like there's one problem that a lot of there's like the first when the cards are spoiled and then when the when the the pack actually comes out and then when the review is written like so there's there's some sort like ideally you'd want to be able to capture like what people thought when the card was first spoiled and you can often look it up but it's a little harder anyway honor and proper came out um it's, it's the first big box or second big box and it's split between prim and jinteki which is the best faction and the worst faction um, and so for Crim's side, it's kind of a hard spot. Like, how, okay, it's this big box also be about Crim, but if you give them more cards, they're even going to be more entrenched as the most powerful faction. Um, and they kind of like try to do a bunch of stuff to like open up new Crim archetypes. And I think it's like a good attempt, though it doesn't really end up working. And so there's basically like two notable cards that come out of Honor and Profit. Security testing and legwork. I think it's a great decision to put both of them. They're both very interesting cards. Um, and I think very fun cards. I think legwork in particular. Alex Frog's review of legwork has it really talks about why RD interface is better than Maker's Eye and legwork is better than HQ interface because of the nature of like how you're accessing those servers. The Maker's Eye at various points in time ends up being better than RD interface. Though it's sort of his review that captures sort of how people understood the game at the time, which is basically that R&D lock is R&D is constantly refreshing new cards. So you want to be accessing a lot because you can constantly see fresh cards, whereas HQ is sort of you access it. And then if you access it again, you're kind of getting a very diminished value because it's refreshing less frequently than, than R&D is as well as R&D lock where it's okay. You see every card they draw, so they can't ever draw an agenda without you seeing it first. So there isn't anything in HQ. And then for the Jinteki side, uh, this box gave them a ton of tools. It was, it was the worst faction. It was basically unplayable until this point in time. Um, it got TFP, which is the first like real uh, defensive three-pointer. It was pretty much the first playable three-point agenda. You, know, you can kind of fringe play Pryweck, but it's really bad. Um, it has a bunch of good ice pop um Kamino. and then actually one of the a lot of people thought inazuma was the best ice at the time which is kind of an interesting thing you know it, it look you look at it and you understand why um it's you know three to res five strength um and it's like not terrible but it never really ended up being as good as people thought it was going to be then there's motion which sort of enables enables well motion decks i guess I think people thought it was good at the time. That took people a little bit to actually like, put a deck using it together. And then the, there was a huge neutral card, which is Fast Track, which I think at the time people kind of, kind of hated. 
because it was like well like rnd lock is the counter to astro and fast advance and so now they're just like can fast advance fast track something to hand i think is actually like a pretty good card to end up being in the game though having played against some of the fast advance decks i do agree it can be very stupid but i think it's it's a cool card um i think it's it's probably a good thing they printed it all right, so that's Honor and Profit. That was like a big deal. And then Lunar happens, and Upstock is the first pack in there. And I think the most important thing that happens here is NEH. Um, you can actually read Dan Dargenio. Uh, at that point in time, I think he was Philadelphia Regional Champion. Um, wrote a review of it. And it, yeah, I think it gives you pretty good insights and like sort of, sort of, you know, how people were thinking about it from the competitive community, like what was, what was good, all that kind of stuff. Um, I just realized how far into this I am, and like we're not even getting to the decks, but that's okay. <laughs> it's totally unlistenable. Um, Lotus Field is a huge deal. Yog Yog Sucker was basically the dominant Cone Gaze strategy at that point in time. People were really excited about Domestic Sleepers. Again, sort of fast advance was pretty much considered the best thing you could be doing. You know, this is a two-zero. Um, basically, it's, it's fast advance for you, not for them. I think it never ended up really being that good. There are a couple of decks that use it. Um, Mother Goddess actually was like a th thing that came out here. Um, and a lot of people were predicting it would be pretty good. Though I think it, it kind of didn't really break the game for a while. Though it does end up breaking the game a lot later in Arena. Um And then there's like... There's two cards that he thinks are bad that I think are low-key sleepers. And we'll talk about each of them. First is Power Tap. Um, Power Tap was terrible at the time. Um, you know, he does not correctly identify the condition that Power Tap will become good at, which is basically a runner card that triggers a trace. Um, so you can basically guarantee Power Tap value every turn and it becomes insane. Um, you know, which is like, I think I think one of the things Dan does in his is just talk about how he's like talking about the existing card pool and what's good now. And that like, obviously things may change, but like Power Tap was terrible at that point in time. And he correctly says it's terrible at that point in time. Though he doesn't really talk about how it could be later become better. The other card is Lamprey. Uh, Lamprey, they didn't really think it was good. Lamprey's actually like a, a very good card. Um, it ends up being like a huge deal of noise. And I think it's like pretty much not played by anyone for like a good chunk of time. There was probably, um, you know, one of the cards that sort of made noise a real deck and then there is the space between the second pack this is the pack with currents currents were pretty controversial i think they're pretty stupid and i think a lot of people at the time identified why they were pretty stupid sort of like one they're snowball-y two it's just like a complete blowout if there's a good runner core if, if you like if like each side has currents the first person to play a current is at a huge disadvantage because the other person essentially gets a because to play the curtain for double, knocking out the other person's good card and putting their own, their own one in. And so what happens is that the person ahead in the game doesn't play a current, and the first behind is forced to try and play a current, hoping the other person doesn't have one. And it really just snowballs the game. And they're just kind of, I don't know, I just don't think they're that fun. Um, and then this review, everyone gets really mad at Dan on Reddit for this review, basically. Basically, the stated reason is because he says cards are bad, and they're like, I think you're, like, misevaluating this. But I think if you, like, read... I, I think there's, like, a naive assumption to say that this is, like, those people are saying, don't yuck at my yum. 
But I think the counterpoint to that is basically, well, Dan is here sharing a bunch of information. He says this is directed at the competitive community. So if you're just like, if you're not interested in that, you don't have to read this. You know, you can, there are people who are interested in saying, okay, what does this person at the top of the game say about these cards? And like, people who are interested in getting better would probably would probably want to read this. Whereas like a bunch of people like are, are sort of interested in building interesting decks or trying to find sort of edge case use cases and might not like this, but that's fine. There's room for both, but I think the thing that this is really getting at, and the reason like a lot of this kind of stuff was really hated, was there's kind of the idea of like the stim hack hive mind that was like uh, sort of homogenizing the meta by saying this is the best deck you have to play Andy um, and stuff like that. And I think I think what what it was is basically Dan is here sharing knowledge, and so it's sort of the competitive game is becoming more accessible because you have a good player saying, here is what I think is good. And so for someone who's new and wants to be competitive or wants to get better at Netrunner, this is like really useful, and it's really good for growing the competitive community. But I think there's also like a community that exists in card games of people who want to like... Well, I think, I think there's two. There's one, there's people who don't want to have to like read stuff online to get better and want to like make their own thing and win and they want to be like feel good about having made their own thing and winning and sort of a bunch of people doing knowledge sharing and sort of spreading sort of like hey this is a really good deck and this is how you win makes it harder to come up with your own thing and win um and i think i think these people every very real contingent and i think they also contingent of people for whom like they just want to like try stuff and like they don't necessarily want to win all the time, but they don't want also don't want to lose all the time. And like when you get more people being part of the competitive community, like your experience going to G and K, and like suddenly you're playing against like a bunch of NEH decks. It's like, well, I just want to play against some Jink, and I'm not going to play against Jink. And so you're sort of growing the competitive community can have like a cost to sort of the casual community. And like I, I've, you know, I, I've a bunch of I played a bunch of casual people. I would say. No, I mean like this is marriage. Like people just like want to get different things. And it's like, and especially people who are like interested in like building a deck that does like, it's like one time out of ten it does this thing, and like they're really excited when it does that thing. Um, and I actually think it's really cool to like watch people when like their like trick com- go their combo goes off. I just like don't want to sit through ten games to get there, but I like really like that other people do that, and I can like look over and watch them like at a meetup, like uh, do something really goofy that where it rarely happens but I, I think this like spoke to sort of this sort of feeling by a lot of people that pe- more people being competitive and more people essentially getting better at the game made it harder for them to get what they wanted out of the game and I think there's a certain extent to which like some of those people like you don't have to please them are just like fundamentally like sort of selfish and want to win more and like are mad that knowledge sharing is causing other people to win more um you know and they're like they're mad that like people are you know like people like a guy that used to beat is now showing up with any agent but i also i think there's a real thing where like a bunch of people are like i feel like i can't play my jank deck anymore because i'm playing against any every week um and I, I feel like it's just i never win um and i think there's like a certain extent which like that's a real concern of like figuring out how to support that community um because i think I think you need both communities in the game. Uh, a company running like a card game needs like support both. And I also don't think they're exclusive categories. I think people can move between the two of them and sort of can, you know, I appreciate casual people 
know, I appreciate people who are just like trying to do interesting things or uh, in Netrunner and not trying to win necessarily. And I think they can also just sort of like, hey, I want to, I want to try really hard, or I want to like, I want to see if I can beat the best thing in the game. But yeah, I, I think I think this is like something that is interesting to talk about because I think uh, the next year and a half to two years of Netrunner is sort of where the casual community just gets totally destroyed. Um, and I think it's a, it is a worthwhile question to ask about like what happened there. But anyway, so some of, the, some of the other cards in the spaces between are basically uh, David and Cash, which are both recognized as pretty good cards. David because it lets Anarch not just die to Archer. Cash because um, it sort of makes noise, who's not been great, you know, gives them a chance to be good. And I think Anarch was like the worst faction at this time, so it's like, okay, maybe Anarch can be good. Um, and also the currents, as I was saying... Most of the currents were pretty bad. I think ELP and targeted marketing were like the two reasonable currents at that point in time. Also cerebral static, though, when the only runner is Andy, cerebral static is pretty bad. And then there's another pack that comes out. Uh, I think it's like first contact or something. Uh, it's really bad. Uh, Chrisium Grid is really the only notable card in there. I actually had like forgotten it and went back and looked at it and realized I missed nothing. So anyway, the last pack that comes out before Worlds, and it comes out pretty close is up and over. And there are a bunch of in- important cards that come in here. Um, and I'll, I'll talk about like the ones people are thinking about at that time. One is Architects. Um, there are a lot of open questions about if Architects was good or not. Oh, and I, the other thing I'll say is that after after Dan gets sort of got blasted on that review, he stopped writing pack reviews because it was like, why am I going to do this? Everyone's just going to yell at me, which I think is like an interesting thing. This sort of makes the competitive community worse and less accessible, you know, because this guy's like no longer sort of sharing like okay here's like what i think is good and like if you want to get better at the game like asking dan like what he thinks is good is a pretty good way um and i think it's it's pretty good when that's like broadly accessible for sort of the competitive community to grow and get better and not be the sort of like insular thing where you need to know people to be good anyways architects uh general disagreement of the time uh, I think more people leaning toward it being good, but a lot of people were like, well, it's not better than Rotator, it doesn't stop the run. As we know now, Architect is one of the all-time best dice, but no spoilers. Uh, Astrolabe, which I think is the is I think the only good shaper console ever printed, is like a huge deal, especially against NEH, um, and is sort of a big bump in, sh- in Shaper's favors. There's Blue Sun, which I think Wayland at this point was probably the worst faction, um, where it's going to exists for like a long period of time you know blue sun was sort of a big bump in power um and, you know it's obviously a very powerful idea you have the oversight of ai card and wall combo which is like a great econ source it's also very fun um blue sun is a very fun id um there's a lot of there's a lot of cool stuff you can do with it and there's a lot of like people talking about it if they think that they thought blue sun would be good autoscriptor Autoscriptor, reading through it, a lot of people thought this was going to be a big deal. If you don't know what Autoscriptor does, it basically, the first time you install, you gain a click, which sounds pretty good. Um, obviously, noise, Autoscriptor noise, people thought it was going to be a big deal. Um, downside is if you make an unsuccessful arm, it gets trashed. Not like a terrible uh, downside at this point in time. Not, a, not like great. And then there was Inject, sort of first Anarch draw card. People, also people, a lot of argument about if this is good or not. Um, a lot of argument if you should play as a noise or not. As we now know, this card's insane. Um, it's also very fun. Uh, it is. There's something really cool about the way in which injects. You know, you put the four cards up, and your opponent is sort of like 
you and your opponent are having this collective moment where sort of, oh my God, you hit that. Oh my God, that's a terrible inject. Oh my God, you got screwed over. Oh no. And it's sort of like this thing where it's this exciting moment for both of you. Accelerated beta test has a little bit of the same dynamic, but I think inject is the big one where you have like something drawn from the top of the deck that both people get to see. I think if a notable thing, if you kind of know about when these cards came out but aren't sure the next pack is all the remains which has two notable cards late and daily business show um so you're not going to see those in any of these decks um and that's pretty meaningful so with all of this there's kind of two decks that emerge between last worlds and this worlds in like the course of the year one faster biotics which is sort of fast advance astrobiotics refers to buyout and out an astro faster biotics is that in any age because of the card draw and it won canadian nats it won u.s nats i think it probably won some european nats it's kind of hard to figure it out um you know a lot of stimhack.com has a lot of like winning decks but it was pretty optional and like not totally well sourced for universal especially in like europe um and shout out to lori for like really doing a good job with uh lori palzer uh, he did a great job getting that so any age is sort of like a front runner deck then emerges RP, uh, created by Dan Dargenio. Um, he writes an article about it where he basically makes it basically uh, defensive upgrades, defensive agendas, and you Nisei train with sort of acid econ and like expensive ice. And then the other the other one is um, there's a runner deck that emerges called uh, Padman. You may better know it as its current name, Prepaid Kate. It's, it's sort of going to be a thing that sticks around for a while. Um, I'll talk a little bit about more because someone will make the cut. And that sort of like covers the meta for 2014. You know, there's there's also Redcoats, which is the first HP Glacier deck. It's the first real Glacier deck. It was made by Nord Runner. Um, it's called Redcoats because it's taxing. You know, I guess I'm I'm probably mostly I don't know how much big of a deal Redcoats are to non-Americans, but we we really don't like taxes here. You know, respect a little stupid taxes are kind of great. You know, it never really won anything, but it sort of first set up the archetype and also is the reason we just put coats in the name of every corp deck yeah netrunner deck names are really really bad all right it's time to talk about the tournament so first off there's a tournament for format um it's gonna be seven rounds of swiss which is pretty light people complained about it at the time i agree with their assessment that seven rounds of swiss is tight it's good. it was the first double limb top cut um sort of the modern format that we pretty much all know and love i think it's a pretty good format um, highly entertaining and just like reasonably fair you know there's some issues but it's, it's pretty good and then cut the top 16 there are a lot of complaints about this at the time because last year's have been top 32 um top 32 double limb cut is really bad they shouldn't you should never do that it's just sort of the advantage between winner bracket and lower bracket is huge it just adds a whole bunch of games that take really long you're much better off having like an extra two rounds of swiss which is i think i think i would do like eight or nine rounds of swiss and then a top top 16 cut additionally they had these things called super buys super buys are like our buys you don't play the first round except instead of um getting like no strength of schedule modification from that you get to play against a person with a perfect record this is kind of insane it kind of gives you just infinite strength of schedule it's kind of like it's pretty stupid um Getting the buy is already a good benefit for the strength of schedule relative to sweeping. Because usually if you're sweeping round one, round one's usually your worst strength of schedule opponent. Not always. Um, but yeah, it's uh, kind of an issue. They get rid of it after this year. 
thankfully. Uh, but it's gonna it's gonna pretty significantly change who gets into the top cut. One of the other things you know, like reading a lot of these things, is Netrunner was not really recognized as sort of this huge breakout game, and they don't have like they didn't give it like good days on Worlds. Um, it didn't get very much uh, mainstream time at all. A lot of the games are not on stream. FFG actually just totally drops. Like you can't find the FFG coverage except for the very final game because they just like never saved it, I think. Um, apparently the commentators on Twitch were pretty bad. I think I watched them out of the time and like I had went to like two meetups and like watched a bunch of Netrunner and I was like, much more familiar with the game. Then Lucas for the top. Lucas and Jeff or Bafka, who were like, at least had like played Netrunner. Um, and we're like, okay, I think. You know, they're not, it's kind of hard. Netrunner is a very hard game. So, like, you know, a commentary on, like, what the player's thinking isn't really there, but they can, like, tell you what Enigma is or, like, why someone might, might want to Ice HQ to prevent account save and stuff like that. Another another big thing is for, this was, like, the first uh, one-game format in the top in the top cut. And they had the 35-minute cut. I think, I think Dan, well, it's, like, they didn't, like, understand. So, two games... Two games of Netrunner has lower variance than one game of Netrunner. Um, this is like not necessarily 100% intuitive, but it's true mathematically. And so if you're giving 65 minutes for um, for for a full round, uh, 35 minutes is going to be a problem for one. You're going to have a lot more games go over time than you do in like a, a regular two game cut. This is, you know, one of the downsides of Sided Swiss is that it's a little higher, higher variance. Uh, you have to add more runtime. This is pretty relevant for RP, which was considered really slow at the deck at the time. I think part of this is a function of just sort of people just like really going into the tank when they're losing. <laughs> it's uh, part of it is is just like I think Dan was like the first really fast player. I watched him. He's not even as fast as he is now. I think he plays about the speed like I do, which is like a little bit slower than he does. And you know, it's kind of like, but it's the, yeah, there's a couple turns where he's gotten pretty fast. Additionally, there's a no scouting rule. You have to leave the area of play after you report your results. Um, they had this next year, and then they got rid of it 2016 forward. It's it's kind of interesting. I think it's it actually works at this point in time. People are less like uh, try hard. There's some issues with the no scouting rule. I'm going to go like back into with the accessibility question of like the competitiveness, which is that people talk. What's going to happen is if you know a lot more people, you're going to know a lot more decks because you're going to be like. Well, I happen to know the person who played the person I did last round. Um, and that's like where a lot of scouting becomes unofficial. Even if you don't allow it, you can just be like, oh, I like you talk with a networker game. And it's like, oh, hey, Dean, Dean played against Timmy last round. So now I know what both of them played. And like now I'm against Timmy. Um, but I think at this point in time, it like pretty much worked. Um, I think people are not serious enough, which I think sort of goes back to what I was talking about with people wanting. Uh, like a, like the problems with maintaining a more casual environment, which is that what you're really opposed to is knowledge sharing and making the competitive community accessible. And you actually have to leave the play area after you after you play. And generally, you can see a lot of like inklings of FFG not caring. Uh, uh, I just sort of lack. I couldn't find none of this stuff about like what was in the cut was ever from FFG. It was all like independent people, or like you know, it's like never a podcast reporting. The stream's gone. Um, the stream quality, you know, the people commentating didn't really know the game. And I think to be fair to the people commentating, uh, I don't know if I don't know how many people know this, but like 
the people working at Worlds are uh, volunteering to work unpaid overtime um, over the weekends, and uh, I say volunteering in like quotation marks. Um, it's kind of it's a pretty shitty labor practice. I try and be nice to this people. Yeah, it's it's just a shitty company. It um it I think FFG does not pay its employees enough and makes them do a lot of free labor. Um, which segues into my next point. So they had the plugged in tour this year, which is like the the lead designer at the time, Lucas Lipsinger, and also Damon Stone, like went around a bunch of cities and had tournaments where you could go like, talk to the designers. Which I think is really cool. Um but also like I don't know. I don't want to do that if I'm Lucas. And it's like but like all this like it's like a good idea and it's like actually a really good format for supporting like casuals of just like hey you play against this like guy and it's like not crazy competitive you know like people take it competitively but like really it's like hey you get to play with like a lead designer here and that's a really cool thing and gets a lot of people engaged who like aren't necessarily interested in like winning but it's also like it's asking this guy to like travel a bunch which kind of sucks like i hate traveling for work i have to do it sometimes but like i'm paid a lot better than lucas is um you know if, you know he's paid like I think he's like paid like thirty thousand a year or something like that, based on Glassdoor, which is like not that much for like having to deal with a bunch of shit. And like you know, he's also like really good at his job. Um, he's like been working a while. There's a lot less than Wizards of the Coast where he ended up going to. So like good for him. I, anytime someone from FSG quits and gets a new job, I'm really happy for them. Um, the company is fucking garbage, and I think, I think there's a certain extent to which I feel we as the consumers who demands the lcg model are responsible for that you know this is this is what it takes to run organized play with like um without like uh booster packs essentially so if you're going to talk about anytime anyone's talking about like mtb being unethical business model it's like well that's what it takes to make enough money to like pay people to run your organized play and um you know i think i think uh mild unethical nature of like gambling is like nothing compared to unpaid labor and shitty labor practices all right so that that rant aside um in the plug-in tour nothing like that happens again um you know i think it's sort of like i was talking about they're just like well they'll go and play the next game you know all those people you know that's we'll just get them on the next one i think which is like not really understanding what they had on their hands with that because i think i think now right was like a breakout game in a way they weren't expecting that like a better company could have capitalized on. All right. Uh, one other thing before getting into talking about um, on the subject of FOGs is Team Covenant, I forgot to mention, who made a lot of early Netrunner videos and their YouTube channel had a, had a ton of videos of like them commentating games with really high quality stuff. I mean, I watched like a ton of their videos and they were really hype. And I think they're they're like a game store in uh, I believe Tulsa, Oklahoma. I think they deserve a lot of credit for producing a lot of the early Netrunner content, and they got they got kind of like a symbiotic relationship with FFG, where like their store is has like a data pack subscription, and they make a bunch of FFG content. Like they they basically film a bunch of the games and then release commentary for them. And this is sort of kind of like what MTG has with their stores relationship with like game stores um where like game stores are like okay we need to run events for magic because when we run events for magic people come here and buy booster packs and we make money and so they basically mtg mtg has a business model where where game stores 
have a strong economic incentive to hold organized play events and sort of um and then you have like secondary people who produce content and stuff like that and so sort of team covenant like has that relationship with fog for um the lcg where they produce all this content and like pack reviews and then sell like a subscription service where you like pay them to get the pack sent to you every every month and also sell tokens and stuff like that but that's not really a replicatable business model like there can only really be one of those um, i think which is one of the, like the, the bigger problems with um lcgs as a model i think team company produces some really good stuff but like ends up like not stopping producing never running content because i think they sort of have the same incentives fog have where they like essentially pump and dump games and uh, where they like get really into it and produce a bunch of content and then like, at a certain point they're like okay everyone who's still playing is kind of hooked um and we're not getting new people in and like team covenant like their role is to, like hype up the new game and sort of get people into it and then be like oh we're producing content for like this next game i don't really blame them for this that's kind of like what makes sense but it is i think it's mostly just a testament to like the the, the problems of the lcgb business model that in my opinion, ultimately lead to, to Netrunner downfall or just simply cannot sustain like a long-term healthy game, um, which is like a theme I'm going to talk about a lot over the course of this for anyone who's stupid enough to, to listen. Anyway, um, so I'm going to talk some, some notes about play quality. Um, I am a person who's from a critical competitive perspective and I'm playing minor modern standards and perspectives. Um, I think I'm better than you know, in 2018, I'm better than anyone playing in this tournament. I think, like, most of the people playing in 2018 were better than anyone in this tournament. People just, like, accrue more knowledge and share more knowledge and get better at games over time. You know, I think a lot of the people in here are, like, very good players who get even better. And, like, their later versions will kick the ass of the earlier version. That being said, I think this is, like, everyone here is good. No one has ever made a Netrunner cut playing terribly. Um, it's actually just... Netrunner is like secretly way too low of a variance game to ever like play terribly and make the cut. Um, you can make some misplays, you can play occasionally bad, but you can't make a ton of mistakes and a ton of really bad mistakes and win. I think there's some great players who play very well. Um, and we'll talk about who they are and, and why I think um, they're really good. But like I, I think like anyone I know like specifically mentioned out, I think they're really strong players, still like good, um, especially for the time where I think I think. You know, they were they were probably doing a bunch of stuff that a lot of people weren't doing. Um, another thing is decks were a lot less uniform, and in my in my opinion, a lot less closer to optimal than the later worlds. Um, so I, I'm maybe going to be sort of talking about, it. but I think that actually makes them a lot more interesting to talk about. Like, why did people not think doing this thing we now think is right? Um, um they're from to play mistakes, just sort of mistriggers, and if you scored with a BP. Uh, forgetting to pay for stuff, they'll pay for stuff. Um, I think these are pretty universal. Um, there's some people... Uh, Dan gets called out for a lot. I think he's not particularly great in maintaining a good board state. I think for the time, he was about average. I think there are a couple people who are noticeably a lot better at maintaining a board state. I'm going to call them out because I think that's really respectable. Um, there, I think there's also two kinds of misplays. There's sort of base ones, which are like, hey, this person wasn't prepared to steal an NAPD, which is kind of like something you need to prepare for, or like running a remote and like having, being like two credits short to trash sand sand. It's like, okay, you should be prepared to do that. Like, that's kind of what you should be, that's like the basic level of what you should be thinking about. But there's more, sort of more complicated ones that I think are, are sort of more vague. 
Like for example, you have four mem, you know, you have four programs installed, zero mem free, and you really need to install a corroder. And like I think you can trash the wrong thing, but it's it's sort of like there's often it's often hard to say what is actually right there. But I think those are generally very interesting to talk about and are like a level of misplay. I say misplay still, because I think you know, you can sort of still definitively say something was not optimal, which makes it a misplay. But I think I think there's just sort of a different level of of misplay to this. I think some of this also like agreeability for a deck to surprise you doing those scouting rules. There's like some stuff where it's like, well, actually that person was playing around sea source and then their opponent didn't have it, or was playing around uh, like snare. It's like I can sort of talk about why they should think it doesn't have it, but it's kind of it's a lot. Of, it's a very different environment because of that. And again, to reiterate, everyone here is good and plays well. Um, there are some people who make mistakes. I think everyone makes mistakes. Um, I think people make more or less mistakes or make the right decision in harvesting areas than other people. Um, but I think I think everyone is really good. I think there's I think some people that are great and play great, uh, and I think but no one's bad. I think that's actually different from from some of Last Worlds. I mean, also it's a top, Last Worlds was top thirty two. It was like. A, a tenth of the field, um, or more than a tenth. It's like a, a fifth. You know, this is really long. We're finally. I'm going over every single deck. We're an hour in. It was like just completely unlistenable. <laughs> so I'm just gonna cut it here, and then I'll I'll have a second episode where I start going all over, over all the decks in the top sixteen. So, uh, goodbye, and perhaps if you made it an hour into this nonsense.